Hello, welcome to the first episode of Students Talk Security for the fall of 2018. My name is Alex Hachigian, and I'm grateful to be interviewing our distinguished guest and my aunt, Nina Hachigian. After receiving her Bachelor's of Science from Yale University, magna cum laude, and her JD from Stanford University with distinction, Ambassador Hachigian went on to work on the National Security Council for the Clinton administration. Then she joined the RAND Center for Asia Policy, ultimately serving as its director for four years. Next, she became senior vice president and senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, focused on Asia policy. Then, in 2014, President Obama nominated Ambassador Hachigian to serve as the second U.S. ambassador to the Association of Southeast Asian States, or Nations, or ASEAN. After being confirmed by the Senate, she went on to have a mark, remarkable tenure as ambassador by strengthening American relations with Southeast Asia and being awarded the State Department's Superior Honor Award for her service. Since the end of her time as ambassador, she has served the City of Los Angeles as Deputy Mayor for International Affairs. Ambassador Hachigian has published numerous articles and books, including as editor of the book, Debating China, the U.S.-China Relationship in 10 Conversations. This afternoon, Ambassador Nina Hachigian and I will have a conversation about the current state of relations between the United States and China. Ambassador Hachigian, welcome. I would Thank like you, to, Alex. I would like to begin by getting your take on the implications of the growing trade dispute between the United States and China. The Trump administration accuses the Chinese government of such intolerable trade practices as maintaining unfair trade barriers to American products, currency manipulation, intellectual property theft, and dumping cheap goods on American markets all to the detriment of American workers and consumers. To what extent do you think the claims by this administration about Chinese practices are valid? Thanks for the question, Alex, uh, and it's great to be here. Before I begin, let me just offer one uh, quick caveat, which is that uh, everything I say on this is my own opinion and just my own, doesn't represent the city of Los Angeles or anybody else, just so you know that. Um, I think it's uh, fair to say that in terms of the substance of, their, of the Trump administration's complaints against China, there's a great deal of validity to their concerns. Uh, the intellectual property theft, uh, the um, stealing of uh, tr American trade secrets um, by hacking, the um, protectionism and protecting their own markets, and the forced technology transfer when American companies seek to enter the uh, Chinese market are all um, absolutely well-documented and unfair trading practices. So I think on the substance, on the substantive side, at least with the areas that I've just mentioned, I think they they have a valid point about the um, about the problems in our trading relationship. Okay, so acknowledging that there is fault on the side of the Chinese, to what degree do you believe that the imposition of duties on Chinese exports to the United States is an effective means of resolving these harmful Chinese practices? Yeah, this is where I would take issue with what they're doing, because I think the way in which they're trying to resolve this trade dispute is really not going to work and is going to ultimately harm uh, American workers and companies a great deal. So first of all, just to be clear on what a tariff is, 
it is a price imposed on goods coming into the country uh, that most of the time, maybe not most of the time, a good deal of the time are passed on to the consumer. So it results in higher prices for the American consumer. In some certain cases, it can give uh, an advantage to American companies because they have lower costs. Um, but in many cases, it doesn't necessarily because of the very complicated way in which uh, goods are actually produced nowadays and which they, you know, parts can be from all different countries and assembled then somewhere else and then imported. So probably the result of all this is that some amount of the uh, final exports will be coming from other countries, but that doesn't change what's actually going on in terms of the production in China. Um, but more importantly, uh, two, two points I would make. One is that if you have unfair trading practices by a partner, the first thing to do is to talk to that partner about how you can resolve them. And I don't think the Trump administration did that enough in the case of China. Um, now, you know, we've been trying for years to, to, um, to wind, wind down some of these Chinese practices and sometimes talking really does work as in the case of President Obama talking to um, uh, President Xi about the use of cyber hacking, uh, and after which China stopped to some degree doing that. Um, and sometimes you need um, a pressure campaign. But the United States cannot be that campaign by itself. Even though we have a big market, um, we need our European allies and our Asian allies with us if we're going to try to make China change its practices. But the Trump administration is at the same time alienating uh, many European allies and Jap Japan and Korea and others um, as well. So that's another, I think, fault I would, I would have with the approach that they're taking. Also, just from a political point of view, uh, President Xi is a strong leader. He cannot be seen to to back down in the face of aggressive American action. He's just going to dig in. So what we've seen is retaliatory tariffs on an equal number, an equal value of U.S. goods. So that's going to then harm our exporters. Uh, and there's no sign that they are going to, they are going to, you know, uh, just give in to us. Politically, it, it's not something that they will do. So um, I don't think that this, this uh, policy that the administration is pursuing is going to work. And in the end, it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's, we're going to end up farther apart. Absolutely. So now I'd like to shift to the broader geopolitical implications of this growing trade dispute. At the same time as this trade dispute, uh, the relations between the United States and China have absolutely soured. Um, and the outlook for nuclear agreement with North Korea has deteriorated as well. As a result of these developments, North Korea seems to be drawing closer and closer to the embrace of China. Do you see reason to believe that the trade policies of the Trump administration are a hindrance to the overall strategy the administration is pursuing with regard to North Korea? Yeah, that's a little bit of a hard question to answer. I, I think probably because I don't think Beijing is in any mood to work with us. I don't worry too much about the North Korean-Chinese relationship. They have a complicated relationship. They basically hate each other, um, to, to put it very bluntly. Uh, and um, even though they are, you know, even though China is North Korea's 
I think, only ally. Uh, but it's a very fraught relationship. There's lots of, um, you know, they share a border and there's um, a fair amount of trade that happens there. But, you know, there's also a lot of North Koreans who try to escape into China, which China isn't pleased about. But ultimately, the, the issue is this. The United States and China share two priorities in North Korea. We want them to give up their nuclear program, and uh, we want them to uh, not not create a huge. We, and we want stability on the Korean Peninsula. Let's put it that way. But China wants the second thing much more than we do, and we want the first thing more than China does. So what happens when we are when we don't have a kind of working close relationship with China? Uh, then they are less likely to take our priority, the, de the denuclearization of the peninsula, uh, into account, and they are less likely to want to uh, sync up our efforts in order to get North Korea to to disarm. And because they, they China is concerned uh, that destabilization in North Korea will lead to a whole flood of refugees across their border, which is not something that they want. Um, so the, the, to answer your question, I think the, it's likely that that's the case. Now, let me say a couple of things about our relationship with China. It's extremely complex and it is not easy. Uh, we, you know, we, what happens in China on a whole variety of issues affects people in the United States and vice versa. We are both big, complex countries with a lot of pride. Uh, and so it's not as if our relationship with China can go smoothly in all areas. Uh, it, that's unlikely to happen. Um, but we should be able to work with them, especially when we have a common agenda. And throwing the wrench of a trade war into the mix just distracts us from the things that we have to do to keep our people safe and healthy and prosperous um, and many of those things that we can do together. Um, we're always going to have disputes with China and we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, but it's still important to have a working relationship to the degree that we can. Sure. That's a great point, Ambassador. In addition to the disagreements over trade policies between the United States and China, a longer standing dispute over the possession and rights of the South China Sea has escalated in recent months. The hardline stance of the Trump administration on the freedom of navigation in the area has caused numerous flare-ups and contributed to general hostility. As the developments seem to only be getting worse, what do you see as the most likely evolution of this situation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the South China Sea is an incredibly complex issue and one that I worked on when I was ambassador to ASEAN. I think the bottom line for the United States is that we want to see the rule of law uh, in this situation, that we want the, um, the law of the sea abided by, and we want there to be peace and stability, and we don't think there should be militarization. We want to see the resources the corals and the fish preserved. It's one of the most beautiful biodiverse regions in the world. And unfortunately, China is just pouring, you know, tons and tons of cement 
uh, on these atolls and building them up into artificial islands, which doesn't change at all their status under the Law of the Sea Convention, um, but does make it possible for China to station uh, military equipment on these islands, which they said that they would uh, never do. So it's not a great situation. One thing that's also very important to consider is the role of ASEAN. ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. It's 10 Southeast Asian nations. They are uh, individually, they all have strong individual relationships with uh, China and with the United States. Um, individually, they can't stand up to China, but collectively they can and they have in the past. Um, that's helped in part by our support of their unity and our support of their goals. Um, and we and ASEAN share the goal of seeing the rule of law applied uh, in Asia. And so to the degree that we can continue to support ASEAN in its efforts, um, that is, I think, really useful. The other claimants uh, in the dispute over the, um, the rights of, of these islands and their surrounding waters uh, are ASEAN uh, countries. Uh, to, to the, to, for, uh, in large part, I should say. Um, you know, the, the Philippines won uh, a, an award against uh, China when they took China to court in the arbitral uh, tribunal ruling under the provisions of the law of the sea. Um, and it was a very clear uh, and very surprising decision um, by this three-judge uh, panel, who are all incredible experts in in law of the sea, uh, but China uh, did everything it could to discredit um, that institution before the ruling came out, and then basically has just ignored it since and said, you know, it doesn't apply, et cetera. Um, but I think that there, it's possible to see there to see a pathway forward where. Um, where China comes clean and has its claims be valid under um, under the law of the sea, um, and where the ASEAN states and China are able to negotiate a code of conduct that would allow for um, fishing and uh, exploration uh, and and um, other kinds of rules uh, in a way that everyone can can benefit. Um, there's one uh, professor uh, in Miami whose idea it's always been to make the South China Sea just one big uh, marine park. And <laughs> I think there's a lot of <laughs> that's uh, politically not particularly feasible, but um, it's a it's a lovely thought because ultimately uh, the resources there are what feeds millions and millions of people um, in Southeast Asia, in China and even in the United States because we import most of our seafood. And uh, in addition, the, the politics of the situation right now uh, make the incentives all wrong for trying to preserve um, trying to preserve what's there for the for future generations. So it's a really complicated problem, uh, and I you know I hope um, you know I hope it moves in the right direction. Well, as do I. Um, so on the topic of military issues. Uh, President Trump and Vice President Pence have been enthusiastic about their proposal to create a sixth branch of the military uh, called the Space Force in order to protect against what they see as Russian and Chinese aggression in space. 
Is China indeed the aggressor in this situation? Or does the proposal by the administration signify instigation on behalf of the United States? Yeah, I haven't followed that issue super closely, but the last time that I um, was thinking about it, it struck me that the the right way to go is not to further uh, militarize um, the situation, but to try to come up with a set of common rules for all nations uh, that we can all abide by. So I think by signaling that we are going to try to be the strongest in space. Uh, we are just incentivizing other powers, China, but also Russia and others, um, to uh, you know to try to themselves build up, and we're at risk of of, of uh, escalation and um, you know creating an arms race. And I don't think that that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Amidst all this tension, the United States seems to be attempting to balance against China by fostering warmer relations with India. A rising global power with similar democratic principles, the United States uh, could seemingly have a compatible partner to help maintain the free and open order in the Indo-Pacific region. How do you see India fitting into the puzzle of the Sino-American relations in the next decade? I mean, I think our bilateral relationship with India is very important and has a lot of uh, upside to it and can really grow in the future for all kinds of reasons. Um, we have strong people-to-people -people ties. We have many areas in which we can cooperate on the national and subnational uh, level. And so I think for its own sake, we should absolutely strengthen our relationship with uh, India. I think we need to be careful about thinking of India as some kind of a, you know, a foil against China. You know, in some cases they will align with us um, uh, over China on a particular issue, but in some cases they may well decide to align with China uh, over us on some other issues. So they are, you know, themselves a huge, proud country, and I, like I said, I think. Um, you know, on some issues, we can absolutely work together uh, uh, in terms of, you know, confronting China when it when it comes to rule of law or or other kinds of issues. But um, but we can't. I don't think it would be smart for us to take for granted where India will come out on on any one given issue. It's a big, complex country. Yeah. In any case, that will be an interesting dynamic. Um, so ever since the, the economic liberalization uh, began in China with the reforms of Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s, many experts have predicted that the democratization of China would uh, follow thereafter. The reality has been quite the opposite, with President Xi himself uh, proving to be the strongest and most repressive Chinese leader um, in quite a while. What do you think has prevented the democratization of China, and do you see those trends continuing or reversing in the future? Well, um, China has gone through over its history many different, um, has had many different kind of incarnations and forms. Um, when the communists took over, and we had then the period of Mao, and then Deng Xiaoping came along and Yes, said to wanted to open up China to the world. I don't think there's um, there's not a strong history, first of all, of of a unified big 
democracy. Uh, I think the current leader is quite repressive and has managed to uh, you know, snuff out any kind of organized um, opposition or almost any kind of major organization of any kind, um, whether it be religious or um, or or social or otherwise. Uh, so there hasn't really been much of a chance for um, any opposition to organize itself uh, and and grow within China. Also, I think there is this implicit bargain that people talk about, which I think is accurate uh, with China, that as long as um, its people are uh, becoming more and more well off, which they have to a, an enormous degree over the last few decades, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been moved out of poverty, then the people will let their government continue and won't make trouble. And when you look at the opinion polls, if they're to be believed about the support of people for their leadership, the numbers are extremely high in China. Like in the 80, in the 80s, 80% um, of the population supporting the, the government. So that's in part possibly because of censorship, because no, you know, there's no um, allowing of opinion that is uh, counter to the government on sensitive issues. Um, also, Chinese people also have a tremendous amount more freedom than they used to in the past. Uh, freedom to, you know, choose their career, to uh, choose their husband or wife, choose to some degree where they live. And so compared to, you know, past generations, uh, I think people, Chinese people realize they're doing quite well. And, you know, as in every country, the vast majority of people are just not that interested and don't follow that closely uh, politics. They're interested in you know, many other things about their lives. So I think as long as things continue to get better for the average Chinese person and, and the Chinese government's hell-bent on making sure that that happens, um, I don't see, you know, signs of a tremendous, you know, political uh, revolution. On the other hand, in the long run, when you look at over time at countries, democracies tend to be more stable um, and they uh, tend to make their citizens happier, and there's not, um, there's no, you know, expectation that there will be a huge change of government in in democracies. Whereas there is still always this question lingering with China about, you know, will its government change? But people have been waiting a long time for that since 1978, as you say, and it hasn't happened so far. And I don't, I don't see the signs of it happening anytime soon. Now, if there's some big crisis, and you know, it becomes a big economic crisis and people suddenly lose lots of, you know, money rapidly. Um, you know, I can see it potentially happening in that context. And there are lots of protests um, which are squashed, but they, they still happen against, um, you know, environmental uh, problems like building of, or, you know, sh um, building of, uh, you know, noxious uh, industrial facilities. Um, there's a, a lot of, uh, concern about corruption. And you saw Xi Jinping when he came in, he had this sweeping anti-corruption campaign, which was in part to get rid of his political opponents, but in part to address what is um, perhaps the most uh, dangerous uh, phenomenon to the Communist Party rule, which is corruption. Um, 
so anyway, if, if you had a situation where there was a, you know, a big crisis of some kind, I can imagine that sparking some kind of, uh, you know, political revolution, but I don't see the signs of it um, on the horizon. Sure. And lastly, to end the podcast on uh, an optimistic note, under what circumstances do you see substantial improvement to the United States and Chinese relations? And going off that, um, what foreign policy um, on behalf of the United States would make for these conditions? That's a tricky question. Uh, You know, I do think that there's going to be some amount of friction in the relationship, almost no matter what because we are these two big complicated countries and we have very different political systems and very different values. And that makes it difficult to establish a really um, deep foundation of trust. Um, Although in times past, we've had much better relationships than we we have at current. I think actually that the challenge on the US side is to really try to come up with a comprehensive policy toward China. It's very difficult to do because um, the the economics and the politics and the environmental stuff and the health concerns and the um, you know the fishing cooperation and all the very you know many many dozens of issues on which we need to cooperate don't necessarily line up well. So it's really hard to come up with a comprehensive uh, policy toward China within our federal government. So I would advise the next president to really try to develop a comprehensive strategy toward China so we can be very clear with China where our priorities are. And that will just bring a lot of clarity to the relationship. Uh, And then once we're very clear on um, what kinds of behavior we can tolerate and what kinds of behavior we really can't tolerate uh, and where are the areas we can cooperate and how we can cooperate. I think um, that will bring a lot more stability um, and clarity to the relationship. I agree. And I really hope we get to that place. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Ambassador Hachigian. And audience, thank you for listening to the Students Talk Security first episode for the fall of 2018. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.